Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is targeted towards allergists and healthcare professionals. But to be honest with you, the information will hopefully be useful for at least 10% of the population. And you're going to get that joke in a minute, I promise. We are delighted to have Dr. David Kahn join us for our episode to discuss penicillin allergy awareness and delabeling. Dr. Kahn is a professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, where he has served as the program director for the Allergy and Immunology Training Program since 1988. Dr. Kahn is the current president-elect of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology as well. In addition to almost 200 peer-reviewed publications and a history of holding multiple leadership positions within our specialty, Dr. Kahn is a world-renowned expert on drug allergy, and I look forward to learning from him today. Dr. Kahn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I think this is going to be very informative. Uh, but before we get into some of the information pertaining to penicillin allergy, I'd like to really discuss your career, if, if, you're, if you're okay with that. And you've spent a significant portion of your career really focused on drug allergy. Why did you first get interested in this area, and what maintains your passion to this day? Well, probably like a lot of other uh, physicians, you never know what uh, what's going to get your uh, interest in line, and and mine was just being in, in in the right place, I guess, at the right time. So, when I came out of fellowship uh, from Mayo Clinic to UT Southwestern, uh, the program that I came into was uh, something where the, a lot of the leaders had interest in, in drug allergy. So, our the person who started our division was Tim Sullivan, and Tim Sullivan, as many of you know. Uh, had a uh, strong interest in penicillin allergy, uh, helped develop a lot of the penicillin desensitization uh, data we have. And then his uh, uh, mentee was uh, Becky Grishala, who is my boss, who did a lot of work on sulfonamide allergy and, uh, and drug allergy as well. So I was more or less forced to become you know, reasonably good at dealing with drug allergy because that's what people came to Southwestern for. And so that's, uh, I think, how it all started. And I think really what maintains my passion is that I actually really enjoy it. And I really enjoy um, helping patients who come to me with multiple uh, drug allergy lists on their label and that we can help uh, get rid of a lot of those and and reassure them and uh, offer a lot of uh, better opportunities for them. It's it's a very rewarding area in allergy and immunology, more so than I think many uh, people give credit to. Mm. And along those lines, I think that this topic of penicillin allergy especially is important for so many reasons, but namely because it really does represent an area where the evidence and our understanding 
have evolved rather rapidly and extensively over the past few years. So how do you set the stage to help patients or even your colleagues and or referring clinicians uh, be receptive to learning new information that sometimes contradicts previously held beliefs? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, penicillin has been around forever. Penicillin allergy is, has been around forever. And so some people always say, well, you know, what, what, what's, what's new about this? Why would I even want to uh, talk about this? But as you said, uh, the, the information has evolved uh, fairly dramatically. And our stance on how we evaluate penicillin allergy has changed as allergists quite dramatically in recent years. And so I think anytime there's new information that's available, uh, people are, are very interested. And I, and I do find that, as, as we'll probably talk about in the future, uh, that this is something that uh, patients are very willing uh, to talk about and are very interested in uh, getting engaged and learning more about this. And in, as far as colleagues, uh, I can tell you, I did a, a grand rounds on penicillin allergy a few years ago, and one of the oncologists uh, uh, came up to me later and said, you know, I thought this, this talk was going to be uh, super boring and I was really mm -hmm. not interested in it at all. And he said, you know, it was one of the better grand rounds that I've attended and, 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 and that's great. So it's, it's, it's nice, I think, when there's uh, good information that, that, that does upset what people have uh, learned about and has thought is gospel. So I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for us all. Yeah. I like that. It is an opportunity. Um, and that's what we're going to discuss now. Uh, before we get to that, National Penicillin Allergy Awareness Day occurs every year on September 28th, which I believe is the anniversary of when penicillin was first discovered. Uh, what are some of the things that the Academy is putting together to help raise awareness? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be happy to talk about that. But I thought we'd talk take a moment to talk about September 28th uh, mm -hmm. as well. And the 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 very fascinating story of how penicillin uh, was developed. So September 28th, uh, 1929 is, is more or less when uh, Alexander Fleming uh, discovered uh, uh, penicillin. And as the story goes, he uh, had his uh, culture plates out and he was away on vacation and came back to note that some of the, uh, the, the mold spores that had grown were actually lysing some of the uh, areas of staph bacteria. And so he uh, did uh, further experiments and he's actually uh, credited with uh, coining the term penicillin. And I think everyone recognizes Alexander Fleming as sort of the father of penicillin, but it, as it turns out, there were many other sort of unsung heroes in the story of penicillin. Um, so 1929 is when Fleming's penicillin paper came out, and really it didn't get that much attention. Um, so Howard Florey uh, led a team at Oxford in developing uh, antibiotics, and they worked on penicillin. Ernst Chain was a German-born chemist in his group, and he isolated penicillin in its structure. And the three of them actually won the Nobel Prize for discovering penicillin, who was not on the Nobel laureate list was Norman Heatley, who actually developed the special culture techniques to produce penicillin. And what's also, I think, unappreciated is the role that all these uh, British uh, uh, scientists helped develop uh, penicillin, but the role that the U.S. played. And in 1941, they worked you know, during wartime, worked with the USDA in all places, Peoria, to help start mm -hmm. manufacturing penicillin. 
and several pharma groups developed uh, mass production of penicillin. To give you a sense of where this all came from, in 1941, the first patient treated was Albert Alexander, who was a, a British constable who had disseminated strep abscesses from getting a pricked by a rose thorn bush. And I think that's something that no one really appreciates these days. It's like, wow, you really got sick from mm-hmm. very li- little things. So they treated him and by the Oxford group, but they didn't have enough penicillin to cure him and he died. A year later, Ann Miller in 1942 was the first patient that was successfully treated and saved by penicillin in the U.S., and they exhausted the entire supply of penicillin for the U.S. And by 1944, this is D-Day, 21 companies had produced 2.3 million doses of penicillin. So it's a really fascinating story about how we got uh, penicillin, and I thought I'd just bring that up because Fleming always gets the credit, but there are others. Uh, it's always a team effort, isn't it? Now, the other question you asked, uh, speaking of teams, is what the Quad AI is doing to raise awareness of penicillin allergy awareness day. And so uh, several things that are occurring. Uh, one is the communications team is working on developing posters for allergist offices. Uh, we're working on developing a template letter that allergists can use uh, in their communities to highlight uh, how allergists can be helpful in terms of penicillin uh, allergy delabeling. We're reaching out to morning shows to, uh, again, uh, get the word out. And then lastly, we're preparing some outreach uh, to uh, the legislatures on uh, Capitol Hill. So a lot of different uh, activity uh, centered around uh, uh, penicillin allergy awareness day. That's, that's wonderful. And uh, we'll provide links to everything in our show notes as well. And people can find all this information, um, not only in the email blast that will be sent out to members, but on the Academy website as well. Uh, back to your historical perspective, which I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up. And forgive me if, if you've already done this, but have you ever considered writing a, a commentary on that um, story that you, sort, that you just shared with us in regards to the history of that and, and put it in some perspective that sort of offers a more personal view into the history of penicillin? Yeah, there's uh, actually in the proceedings, uh, allergy proceedings last year, uh, I uh, uh, wrote a, a little brief uh, intro uh, to this. Um, so there's there's a little bit of, of, of that uh, that I've written about. But yeah, it, it, it was part of my grand rounds and I, and I found it so interesting that I, I do like to share this story with other people. I think it's great. And I'm really glad you shared it with us. And uh, just remember me when you write your book on it. I'm happy to write the foreword for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, my, my favorite statistic in all of medicine, I love this, is that 10% of the general population reports having a penicillin allergy. But more than 90% of those exact same people are not actually allergic. Why is there such a huge discrepancy here? So I think there's probably uh, two main reasons for this. Um, and the first probably being the, the, the biggest reason, and that is that most of the people who get labeled with penicillin allergy in the first place probably were never allergic to begin with. And we know this is true, especially for all the people who get this uh, penicillin allergy label during childhood. Um, so there's uh, some very good studies that have shown that children who are treated with uh, beta-lactam uh, antibiotics like penicillin um, and who get rashes afterwards, well, it's always blamed on the antibiotic because that's the obvious uh, source. 
But in fact, it's oftentimes the underlying illness, which is usually viral, which they shouldn't have gotten the antibiotic in the first place, but it's the viral rash that causes uh, these reactions. Uh, and there was a nice study that Jean-Christophe Kobe did uh, several years ago uh, showing uh, that uh, you could take these children two months later and give them uh, penicillins, and the majority of them would not react. Yet the vast majority who had rashes had detectable uh, uh, PCR evidence of, of viral infection. So that's one reason. The second reason is those people who truly are allergic to penicillin, we know that over time they lose that allergy. And so there's limited data on this, but there have been some prospective evaluations that have taken people who with good stories for penicillin allergy and skin test positivity, where you test them five years later and 50% lose their skin test reactivity to penicillin. So the natural history of penicillin allergy, like many other antibiotics, is to wane over time. So I think for those reasons, uh, this is why the majority of these labels are actually false. It, it sounds like you're describing a combination of uh, poor understanding of, of true allergy, as well as a bit of a conservative approach of, well, let's just be on the safe side and, and sort of avoid it moving forward. Um, do you think that's, that's a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, as physicians and healthcare providers, we're all uh, trained you know, to, to do no harm. And you know, if there's any concern that someone might be allergic to a medication, from a provider standpoint, it's very easy just to say, well, just, just avoid it. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what harm is there in that? And as we'll talk about uh, in, the, in a bit, I'm sure, there actually is harm in, in, in doing that for penicillin. But I think everyone means well to say just avoid it, but that can have consequences. Well, actually, that leads to my next question, because I'm fascinated by the research looking into just purely having a label of a penicillin allergy on somebody's electronic medical record or health record or whatever it may be. Um, it can negatively impact their care. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Just that simple label, the act of putting on their chart, what does that do to people? Yeah, so this is, uh, again, I think something that none of us really had on our radar screen was the morbidity associated with the label of penicillin allergy. And, you know, um, it was not that long ago that uh, when people came in for, and, you know, they had penicillin allergy on their chart as allergists were like, well, as long as you don't really need it right now, we don't really need to do anything about it. We have testing and tools that we can evaluate that, but we only do that when you really need the uh, antibiotic. Um, but, uh, now there's uh, several studies, and I think one of the uh, original studies that really helped put the morbidity on the map was a study by Eric Macy at Kaiser uh, Permanente, who looked at over 50,000 uh, patients uh, who had labels of, of penicillin allergy and compared them to those without penicillin allergy. And he noted that these patients who had labels of penicillin allergy were more likely to get antibiotic-associated infections like MRSA and C. difficile and VRE. Um, they were more uh, likely to uh, end up in the hospital. Other studies have showed they stay in the hospital longer. And uh, Kim Blumenthal has, has replicated this work in other cohorts and, and has uh, shown in other studies that there's increases in all-cause mortality from having that label of penicillin allergy. So it's certainly not something that's, that's benign. And the fact that it's false most of the time 
is an important reason uh, for this uh, whole process of getting rid of that uh, allergy label, so-called delabeling. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned the words penicillin allergy a dozen times already, and we're going to continue to do so. But before we go any further, what does it mean when we say penicillin allergy? Is there just one type of allergy? And if not, how do they differ from one another? Yeah, so this is, I think, something that um, I think most patients certainly don't understand. And I would say a lot of physicians and other healthcare providers don't understand that uh, there are multiple forms of penicillin allergy. And as allergists, I think we tend to get siloed into thinking of penicillin allergy as, as one thing. We all know it's not, uh, but we think of, well, penicillin allergy must be the type of immediate reaction where people get you know, hives or breathing difficulty or have anaphylaxis, et cetera. Uh, but that's just one form of penicillin allergy. Probably the most common are those people who develop delayed uh, rashes, the so-called maculopapular exanthem related to uh, penicillin. But there are a whole host of other immunologic reactions. People can have uh, low, low blood counts. They can have hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia. They can have liver injury, kidney injury. They can have severe cutaneous drug reactions like Stevens-Johnson syndrome, TEN, DRESS syndrome. And so there's a whole spectrum of different reactions to penicillin allergy, and not all of these we can deal with. And in fact, many of these we don't really have a lot to offer. So for someone who has, say, a history of Stevens-Johnson syndrome related to penicillin, uh, we, 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 don't do, uh, we don't have much in terms of testing uh, for these patients and avoidance is certainly recommended. Now, fortunately, those are far and few between as opposed to most of the other patients who have rashes or other reactions associated with penicillin. And that's just allergies. So I think the other uh, even larger part are those people who have adverse reactions to penicillin. So someone who has GI upset or gets a headache or other things that probably aren't even really due to a hypersensitivity reaction, but uh, nonetheless gets labeled as being allergic. Mm-hmm. And when we do d- determine or we, to the best of our ability, feel that somebody does have a, a true allergy, whether it's the immediate onset or delay type of allergy, um, is it safe to assume that those symptoms will occur again every time they get the same medication in the future? Um, and if so, is that the same as adverse reactions that you discussed? Yeah, so I think as allergists, we always like to believe that there's going to be some consistency with hypersensitivity reactions. But in reality, we know that that's not necessarily the case and that some people don't uh, consistently react every time. And why that is, I don't think we necessarily know. Uh, certainly, and this is for hypersensitivity reactions, but for uh, non-immunologic uh, based or adverse reactions, clearly, Sometimes people do fine with it, and other times they don't. Uh, they may have nausea, vomiting uh, one time, and other times they don't. So that's a lot more uh, less uh, consistent. Um, most people who are allergic will react the next time. The, the, the type of reaction may not be consistent, uh, but I would say that's a little bit more consistent, but not 100% by any means. Mm-hmm. What are some of the questions or what are the the types of questions that allergists should ask patients who report to penicillin allergy and how does that help in the evaluation? So uh, just like a lot of other things, the history is uh, very important in in drug allergy and penicillin allergy especially. And it's really the cornerstone now 
in terms of what we, how we stratify patients in terms of different testing. So, so the first question that is, is that, or the, the series of questions that you want to ask maybe to determine, number one, is this even really an allergic reaction? Are the symptoms consistent with this being an allergy? Uh, if it's just isolated gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, that makes it certainly less likely. Um, however, uh, maybe it is a rash, and then you want to know, well, is this just a rash, or was there other symptoms involved? Were there respiratory symptoms? Were, did they feel lightheaded at the time, et cetera? How severe was the reaction? Did they end up in the hospital or not end up in the hospital? That type of thing. Were there any of these kind of red flag syndromes, symptoms uh, suggestive of, say, they were hospitalized in a burn unit? Okay, well, that's mm -hmm. a huge red flag. Mm -hmm. um, uh, did they have, you know, liver injury, kidney injury, these types of things? What we're mainly interested in is trying to, to divide out those patients that, number one, we think this, this sounds like it could be. Uh, a penicillin allergy versus one that's clearly an intolerance. And then number two, is this the type of patient that we can test for? And it turns out the majority of patients we can test for, it's only uh, the, the rare patients who have organ-specific reactions. So they have kidney failure, liver failure, you know, pneumonitis from penicillin, or the severe cutaneous adverse reactions, the SGSCEN dress that we really can't do penicillin testing. Most of the other reactions we certainly can, and then it just determines, is this a benign reaction, how long ago it was? This all then factors into how we test patients. Mm -hmm. Well, for the purposes of our conversation, let's just assume that we're going to refer to IgE, immediate onset hypersensitivity reactions to penicillin, unless we otherwise state. So along those lines, for IgE-mediated histories, what tools do allergists have available to assess for penicillin allergy? Yeah, so great question, and I think the as as we had mentioned, the history is is the starting point. So we kind of divide patients now in terms of low risk histories, and then anything that isn't low risk. Um, so uh, and there, there's probably zero risk uh, histories as well. You know, if you say, well, you know, my my big toe hurt after I took penicillin, well, that's probably not an allergy, um, and uh, you know, so. But if, 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 say, we say, okay, this was a rash, and um, it doesn't really matter whether someone says it with hives or not, et cetera, because as we know, uh, patients and, and, and other physicians aren't very good at knowing what is hives from other types of rashes. And really, that really doesn't matter so much. But if it's limited to a, a, a skin rash, and it's remote, and how long ago is remote, there's a little bit of debate. You know, is it more than five years ago? Is it more than 10 years ago? Uh, but some time has gone away, and it's just cutaneous only. Um, these are the patients that we would certainly consider uh, for doing what we call direct challenges. Uh, and that means that instead of going right to skin testing, that we would just skip skin testing and do a, uh, a usually a graded challenge where we might give them a tenth of the dose of the penicillin, watch them for you know, 15, 30 minutes, and then give them uh, the rest of the dose of penicillin and observe them afterwards. And what we now know is that for almost all children who have non-anaphylactic reactions to penicillin who are amenable to some type of testing, direct challenge appears to be the best way to move forward, and, and skin testing is really not required. For adults, uh, there's not 
quite as much literature suggesting that that is the way to go, but it's certainly an option. And I think uh, for those patients who don't have a lot of comorbidity, uh, direct challenge is very reasonable for these low-risk patients. Um, if someone, you know, maybe they've got bad coronary disease or COBD, et cetera, and you're more concerned, uh, penicillin skin testing followed by challenge is tried and true in terms of safety and uh, the uh, negative predictive value. So that's always a good fallback. And then for those patients who have the more severe histories, that's when you certainly want to do uh, skin testing prior to any type of challenge. With the skin testing, do um, allergists always have to um, do intradermal testing after the, um, the epicutaneous skin prick test? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a, a, a good question. And I think for penicillin, uh, the answer is definitely yes, because it's actually very uncommon to find patients who are just prick test positive uh, to penicillin, or, or namely for most drug allergies as well that we really need to do uh, intradermal drug testing uh, to uh, find uh, the uh, evidence for uh, IgE. Mm. And how important is it to use both a positive and negative control when doing skin testing with penicillin? Yeah, I would say just like with other uh, tests, it's, 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 it's very important. So the importance of having a positive control is obviously you want to make sure that uh, this, that you're not missing someone who's taken an antihistamine and all their tests are negative when they actually do have IgE. And uh, a negative control is, you know, obviously if someone has dermographism or something like that, uh, where they may be, uh, their skin is too reactive that you can really uh, interpret the testing appropriately. So anything you're doing testing, you do need appropriate negative and positive controls. And I would say uh, that's one thing, one area where the allergist definitely uh, does have, and, and allergy practices, I should say, have special expertise in terms of skin testing. I think when we talk about penicillin skin testing, it sounds like it's super easy to do. And I think for someone who does lots of test skin testing, it is easy to do. But if you're a specialty or some other physician practice that, that's never done it before, uh, the interpretation of it can be uh, challenging. So it's not hard to do, but you do need special expertise uh, to be able to do it and interpret it. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned that not everybody needs to have the skin testing based upon sort of the pretest probability and their own clinical history of uh, having low risk for having IgE-mediated allergy. So for allergists who are doing uh, direct challenges, what does that look like in the office setting? How long do patients need to be there? Is this, are we talking um, having you know penicillin or amoxicillin ready to go, or do patients bring it with them? And does it need to be liquid or pill form? Or tell us a little bit more about the details, if you may. Yeah, sure. And I think uh, many practices do this in, in a variety of different ways, but since it is becoming uh, a larger part of how we're uh, doing testing uh, for penicillin, I think it's important to have these uh, you know, so-called tools uh, available. So most uh, clinics who do uh, any volume of penicillin testing uh, do keep some, uh, usually amoxicillin, uh, on hand. And you can have this in uh, tablet form. You can have it in capsules. You can have it the pink stuff or liquid. Um, probably doesn't really matter too much. And, uh, you know, I would say the waiting times are also variable. There are some uh, practices that after 30 minutes of observation, they say that's good enough. Uh, you know, probably the more conservative groups watch people an hour, 
just to, um, you know, j just because I would say. Probably if you're going to see something serious, it is probably going to happen within 30 minutes. Uh, but every now and then you'll see someone who has more benign reactions that may take a little bit longer. Um, but it, it doesn't take a lot of time. It's not uh, very resource intensive. It's not hard to uh, cut a pill in, in, into quarters or, or measure out a little bit of amoxicillin. So this is one of the easier procedures uh, that we can do um, and easy to teach your staff about how to do it. And it can really uh, almost run on autopilot once you determine who needs, who, who's able to be able to get this kind of low risk uh, testing. Mm. And you go through, let's say you go through all of this and nothing happens during that 30 or, or 60 minute time of observation. Uh, does that rule out IgE mediated allergy or what about non-IgE mediated causes of allergy? Are, are you good to go from there? Do some people need to take penicillin at home for the next five to seven days? Or, or any other sort of uh, nuance involved? Yeah, so for someone who has um, been observed uh, for an, an hour, it'd be very unlikely that you're going to miss IgE-mediated uh, penicillin allergy. Probably the, the, the big point that you raise is, well, what about all these other, you know, delayed uh, reactions and is an hour sufficient? And there, uh, an hour may not be sufficient, but... Uh, giving longer doses may not be necessary either. And this is, again, where the, the, the field has evolved. Um, there's a little bit, I would say, debate about this. Um, and in Europe, they really tend to advocate for treating patients for about five, sometimes seven days uh, with a, a, a penicillin after a negative test uh, to rule out these uh, you know, delayed type reactions, these non-IgE-mediated reactions. As it turns out, there's a few studies that have now shown that after, you know, completing your challenge, that, that single challenge, people can react up to seven days later. Hmm. So all you need to do is basically wait. And if a week goes by, uh, then you've really excluded it. Um, hmm. And so there's really no need to treat patients unnecessarily with another antibiotic course to look for these uh, delayed reactions. And in fact, uh, one study uh, found when they did that, when they waited it, and then they, they, they treated people, they found that it would take, you would have to test uh, with weekly doses about 113 patients to catch one benign reaction. And that, that math just doesn't work out. So it's clearly not worth uh, the potential burden and risk of, you know, you know, poor antimicrobial stewardship to be giving long courses of antibiotics. So, yeah, I think that the single challenge will rule out that day the IgE-mediated reaction. Then a week later, if nothing happens, it rules out the, the, the delayed reactions as well. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of counseling at the time of the visit, and, you know, everybody has smartphones, take some pictures if a rash occurs, and we can always evaluate that 1 in 113, as you mentioned, if something does happen down the road. Well, what about concerns of resensitizing somebody with, with skin testing or oral challenge? Can we create allergy uh, in somebody by doing these tests? Yeah, so this is a question that has been raised, and unfortunately, uh, there is information about risk of resensitization. Uh, so Lewis Mendelssohn many years ago did studies on children uh, showing that the risk of resensitization to oral courses of, of amoxicillin was um, you know, negligible at best, but not, not a big concern. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Roland Solensky, when he was a, a fellow with us at Southwestern, uh, did a study where he took patients with histories of uh, immediate reactions to penicillin, tested them, skin tested them, and then treated them with 10 days of penicillin, and then repeated that again. So they got skin tested again in another course. And they did that three times to patients. Mm-hmm. And zero out of 46 patients converted to a positive test. So uh, we feel pretty confident that with oral uh, dosing, that it's very unlikely. Uh, With intravenous dosing, that also appears unlikely. Uh, There are probably more studies suggesting that we don't see resensitization than there are that suggest that there is. So uh, we feel that the risk of resensitization uh, for both oral and parenteral is, is very low and that you don't need to repeat testing every time after a negative test. That's very reassuring. And I know that that misconception comes up quite a bit on uh, some of the folks that I talk with. So I appreciate you sort of giving us the background regarding that. But what about patients who have these histories of delayed onset severe reactions, uh, such as serum sickness, erythema multiforme, or other um, severe uh, suspected adverse reactions or immunologic reactions, I should say? Are there diagnostic tests available for them? So we're starting to see now, and and there's going to be some papers coming out, uh, specifically on serum sickness-like reaction. And there's a little bit of data already out there, um, but it does suggest that in children who have, and they're more prone uh, to getting serum sickness-like reactions, um, that using oral challenges uh, can be a safe and effective way in evaluating patients with suspected serum sickness-like reaction. And in fact, uh, there's a paper in in Press uh, and Jackie in practice uh, that found that the vast majority of children who had these histories were able to be uh, challenged and actually tolerated this. Uh, So I think this is an area, again, that as allergists, when we saw patients who had histories of serum sickness-like reactions, said, whoa, that's a hard stop. We have nothing else to offer. Now it actually may be the case that, yeah, we, we, we can consider oral challenges uh, for these patients. I think, unfortunately, for the other rare things, uh, as we talked about the SGSTEN dress, we have very minimal tools and ones that I think we don't feel very confident that if the testing was negative, we'd say, you know what, it's okay to go ahead and move forward with penicillin. So I think that's an area of need still. But fortunately, those are uh, far and few between. Mm. Now, Dr. Khan. I want you to go on the record with this next question. Are we okay. allowed? Are you ready? Okay. You, you yeah. agreed. You, you didn't hear it yet. I appreciate that. <laughs> are we allowed to just remove a label of penicillin allergy from somebody's medical record? I love that question because we've actually uh, had a consult uh, in, in the past, more, more than once, to, to do that exact thing. And, and the story was, you know, here, you know we have this patient and they have this label of penicillin allergy, but we noticed that in the chart that they safely received a, a penicillin antibiotic. Uh, can you come over and take the label out of the patient's <laughs> chart? Um, and, you know, it's just like, are you serious? There's, there's just such a phobia of doing anything to that label that, you know, uh, you know the allergist has special powers to hit the delete button. And so this is something when I'm talking to uh, general medical audiences that I always try and reassure them that you have the power to hit delete just like anybody else. Now, um, unfortunately, uh, just hitting the delete button in the electronic medical record does not always uh, remove that allergy permanently. And in fact, there's a high rate 
of what we call relabeling. So, mm. uh, you know, you do all the hard work, get rid of that penicillin allergy label, and you think all is well and good. But it turns out that many times, and this can happen uh, anywhere from, you know, uh, up to some cases, 50% of the time that that Oof. allergy label comes back, which is crazy. So there are a lot of things, mostly educational things, and I would say focusing on the patient especially is important uh, to tell them, you know, uh, that yes, you did this uh, testing, that yes, in, in the future they can take penicillin, that they are not allergic, and they need to tell everybody uh, and their mother if possible that they are uh, not allergic to penicillin, especially the pharmacy. Um, one of the things that we're all aware of with electronic medical records is that uh, these, there's uh, you know, this kind of consolidation of things. So um, someone else, some other uh, medical record accesses it, and they have outdated information, and some clerk hits the button, and suddenly the, the allergy reconciliation is, oh, well, there, there's that allergy again. So... Um, it, it is a problem. Uh, it, it, the, the issue hasn't been solved, but I think through education and really empowering the patient um, is, 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 is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that's kind of the most important part of all of this, right? Because if you go through all these steps and you tell somebody they can take penicillin again, but then somehow it ends up back on their record, then really everything you've done is for naught, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a critical uh, thing to do. Mm hmm what about patients who are labeled with penicillin allergy because they have a family member who reported having a penicillin allergy, but they've actually never received it themselves? Can you just simply take it off their chart or tell them that they can receive it, or do we have to evaluate them as well? Yeah, this is this this can go either way, to be honest with you. So I think uh, after having a discussion with the patient, um, hopefully most of the time they'll say, oh, okay, thanks, I didn't know that, and yeah, take that off my record. Uh, however, there are some patients who are like, well, you know, I don't know. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people in my family who have penicillin allergy. And so if there's any uh, resistance, concern, anything that that patient is expressing, it's certainly just easy enough to say, well, you know, here's some amoxicillin. We'll, we'll, we will get that off your list. So hopefully we don't have to do that in many. And just through education, we can remove that. But if they're hesitant about that, then, like we said, with that relabel, they're still going to be hesitant about carrying that forward. So uh, whatever it really takes, uh, and if we can do this through education, great. If not, uh, mm -hmm. an oral challenge is usually sufficient. Yeah, sure. Well, what about other historical details where we can just simply remove a penicillin allergy from somebody's record without any testing or evaluation? You mentioned uh, pain in the big toe as a, you know, okay, we can take <laughs> yeah, that one right. off, but <laughs> anything else come to mind? Yeah, I think some of the, the common things that the people complain about with all sorts of things, so headache being uh, one of them, uh, certainly anything that's just isolated GI distress, uh, so they get nauseated, they have vomiting, they have diarrhea, you know, these are all well-known adverse effects associated with antibiotic therapy, and they don't need to be labeled uh, with that. Unfortunately, you know, this gets a little bit tricky. Uh, there are some patients who you know, give you very good stories for having pretty severe GI symptoms associated with certain antibiotics. And, you know, okay, it's not an allergy, but, you know, they're probably never going to take that again. Unfortunately, there's not a good way other than in the allergy record uh, to, to put that in there. Um, so I think, you know, adding a little bit of text and verbiage can, can be helpful. You know, many times if, if they're really sick, they can get these intravenous antibiotics and do okay. Um, so 
But those are patients that you can certainly delabel and again counsel, and, and most patients are okay with doing that. Mm, that's great. Well, you mentioned before that even for those with legitimate true penicillin allergies, that this may wane over time. Uh, so how can we determine that? Is there a set period of time that's, that's the magic number, or do we need to test, or how do we go about evaluating those patients? Yeah, I would say there, there probably isn't a, a, a great number. I think most people feel that if it's been 10 years, the likelihood of someone being allergic is, is very, very low. Um, you know, the, the one prospective study that I'm aware of, uh, five years was 50%. Um, and so uh, sometime uh, after that, uh, for adults, uh, I, I think it, it's certainly reasonable. Now, we know, I think, for children, that even two months after a reaction, they're unlikely to be allergic. So I think that's something that can be looked at sooner. But if you have someone, you know, maybe you who says, oh, yeah, I was, I was tested by uh, another allergist uh, X number of years ago and found to be uh, allergic to penicillin, um, that can certainly be reevaluated. Um, and in fact, um, uh, many times uh, the you know, especially in the past, and there's some practices that don't do a lot of penicillin allergy testing and may have a tendency to overinterpret the results. Mm. It can't hurt to, uh, to, to redo that. So uh, now if you've done the testing, you're obviously confident in your, your own uh, facility's uh, uh, testing abilities. Uh, you're probably not going to do that every year, but, you know, uh, you know, a few years down the road, certainly worthwhile trying again. Mm -hmm. No, I love that message. It's really important just to reevaluate over time as things may change. Now, I know there's a lot of confusion surrounding cross-reactivity of penicillin with other antibiotics. What does cross-reactivity refer to, and which antibiotics need to be avoided for somebody who truly has an allergy to penicillin? Yeah, so do we have another hour, Dave, to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> we, we certainly can if you have the time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is, this is I think, another uh, age-old question about cross-reactivity. And what we're really talking about is cross-reactivity with other beta-lactams. So uh, penicillin is, is a beta-lactam, cephalosporins are, uh, carbapenems are, uh, monobactams like astreanam are all considered beta-lactams. And so... You know, depending on who you ask and how long ago it was that they received any type of medical education, you know, the number, the percent of cross-reactivity varies uh, dramatically. Amongst many of the house staff, it's in the neighborhood of if you're allergic to penicillin, well, you have a 5 to 10% likelihood of reacting to a cephalosporin. Um, as it turns out, all of these uh, cross-reactivity things are very inflated. Um, and, and there's much more emerging data that cross-reactivity rates are actually quite low. Um, so the things that we don't really need to worry about are someone with, uh, with penicillin allergy who needs a carbapenem. Uh, the risk of cross-reactivity is exceedingly low. With monobactams, it, 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 it's non-existent. Um, and with certain uh, cephalosporins, like cephazolin, if you have an allergy to penicillin, it also is, a, you know, these patients can tolerate cephazolin. Where it gets a little trickier um, are in patients with penicillin allergy who, uh, particularly aminopenicillin allergy. So, so someone who is allergic to amoxicillin, could they be at higher risk for reacting to certain cephalosporins that share the same R1 group? Um, 
And uh, there have been some meta-analyses that have been recently published. And this is in a highly select group of patients. So these are patients who, are, for the most part, have had anaphylaxis to amino penicillins, which is something that we actually don't see very often in the U.S. But if you take this group of patients and then you skin test them to other uh, aminocephalosporins that have identical R1 side chains, the likelihood of finding positive tests is not 100%. It's not even 50%. It's 16%. So mm. even in this very enriched population who should be very cross-reactive, the cross-reactivity is still pretty modest. And for all the other ones, it's around 2 or 3%. Now, this is proven anaphylactically sensitive penicillin with positive skin tests. How often do we see these patients in our clinical practice? Exceedingly rarely. So that's why in patients who have, you know, the typical unverified penicillin allergy that's non-anaphylactic, we believe that they can receive any type of cephalosporin. And that's really, I think, the important message that unless you have bona fide penicillin anaphylaxis, you know, if you need a cephalosporin, get the cephalosporin and the risk of reacting is, is, is no greater than the general population. Should allergists be asking about and assessing penicillin allergy for every patient they see? I mean, what if somebody comes in because they get, you know, itching and sneezing when they're around dogs? Yeah, so I think this is really where there's, we, as a specialty, we need uh, to have this kind of behavioral change. And this is, this is hard. Change, change is always difficult. But that type of patient is now the type of patient that uh, we actually do ask about, and I actually do ask about penicillin allergy. In fact, it's one of our new quality metrics for our division is in people who come in for whatever reason, have we asked about penicillin allergy? Um, and you'd think that they're coming in for their dog allergy. They're not going to want to talk about penicillin allergy. But when you, when you approach it and you, you give them some kind of quick facts, and, you know, I, I start with saying, oh, I noticed that you're, you have this history of penicillin allergy. Do you know that because you have that, you're at risk to have more problems from, from getting treated with other antibiotics and that it's very unlikely that you're actually still allergic and it's very easy for us to remove that label? Um, when you give them some of those facts, the vast majority of patients are like, oh, you know, I've always wondered about that. Yeah, I'd like to get tested for it. There are, there's some data in the literature showing that many clinics can do this uh, at the point of care. So they come in for their, their allergic rhinitis, and they leave finding out they're not even allergic to penicillin allergy. And by the way, you're also allergic to your dog. So <laughs> you can accomplish it all in once if you, if, if, if you, if you need to. And that's, just, that's where the, really the role of direct challenge can be very uh, expeditious in terms of answering those questions. So what message would you like to send to our colleagues who are listening and don't feel like they have enough time or resources in their busy practice to address penicillin allergy with all of their patients? Yeah, so I, I hear this a, a lot from other allergists in terms of the time commitment, uh, the cost, you know, how much uh, penicillin reagents uh, are and all these things. And uh, obviously, the, these are uh, important uh, facets uh, to address. But I think uh, even if you say, well, you know what, I really don't want to do penicillin skin testing, uh, that's not something I would advocate, but uh, okay. 
um, you can still address penicillin allergy through direct challenge, and that's still going to apply to the vast majority of patients who you come across with this label. And to do a direct challenge, it doesn't take very much time at all. Uh, you can do this very quickly. It's not resource intensive, uh, and uh, it, you know, it doesn't tie up a lot of activity. And you know, this, this can be done in just a little bit over an hour. Um, and, and a lot of times, that's what I'll ask patients. I say, you know, when we kind of go through this, I say, hey, do you got an hour to do this? And I look at their watch and say, yeah, I've got an hour. <laughs> say, All right, let's do it right now. And so it, it is, it, it's super easy to do. Um, and I think if you can kind of work that into your workflow, um, it, it does, um, the patient satisfaction, I think, is is quite uh, important. And even, even with these old things that, you know, people haven't really given thought about, they appreciate that you've done that work for them. I think that's great advice. And, you know, I think a lot of us think, look at this and say, oh my gosh, well, there's no way I can get a hundred percent of people. Well, if we don't even try to get, you know, some of them, they won't get any of them. So there are days when maybe it's just not a good time for it or certain patients, like you said, may not be open to that. So I agree wholeheartedly that if you take a proactive approach uh, and discuss it with patients and offer that, that we can really make a, a tremendous positive impact in their lives. Absolutely. What about primary care clinicians or even pharmacists? Is there a role for them to assist in the evaluation of penicillin allergy? So I think this is really the, the, the next wave of, um, of delabeling. So, you know, if you kind of look at and, and do the math of, of 10% of the U.S. population has a label of penicillin allergy, you know, that's close to 35 million uh, patients. Mm. And there's, you know, what, 6,000 or so board-certified allergists, maybe less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and most board-certified allergists did not sign up to do 24-7 penicillin allergy delabeling as much as I love it. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that day in and day out either. Um, so we do need help. Um, and I think uh, where I hopefully see the field moving is that, um, you know, we, can, we, we as allergists have the special expertise to be dealing with maybe the more, uh, those, those less uh, common patients that have more potential for more uh, high-risk penicillin allergy. It may require penicillin skin testing, and we can uh, do that. But for a lot of patients, the really low-hanging fruit, um, primary care providers should be able to, to do that. Now, allergists have shown that, yes, you can do direct challenges, but most of this is all in allergists. There have been the rare reports of ER physicians doing it, et cetera. I think we need to then um, prove that this can be done in a uh, primary care setting, which I do believe it can be done, but it's it's also going to you know require uh, you know breaching a lot of barriers because allergists are comfortable with the the idea of someone having an allergic reaction and treating that, and primary care doctors uh, are not at all. So um, it's 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 going to take some some time. It's not going to happen immediately. Um, as in regards to pharmacists, this is an area that we have been uh, very active in at our local county hospital, uh, where we've had the uh, opportunity and uh, and honestly privilege of working with the Department of Pharmacy, who is interested in uh, penicillin allergy delabeling. And so what we have been doing now for the last um, uh, seven years now, I believe, uh, of having pharmacists who are trained 
in penicillin allergy testing, and they go in the inpatient side and test patients while they're sort of captive in the hospital and delabel them that way. It actually mm-hmm. turns out to be a, a really good um, a thing for all parties concerned. Number one, many of these patients, this is one of the few times that you can actually get a hold of them, is when they're in the hospital, it changes their antibiotic needs uh, right away, and it's a great service for the patient. Um, our fellows like it because they don't get called a ton for testing <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it's, it's good to have that kind of cooperation with the allergist and, and the pharmacist. And, and this, can, this has been done in, in a variety of settings uh, throughout the U.S. And I think it, it, it's best when it, where there's a cooperative agreement because there are some, certainly, you know, you have a protocol, but there are patients who are a little bit outside that. And if they can just kind of give you a call and say, you know, I've got this patient. What do you think about this? And then you can give them advice. Um, so I would encourage uh, community allergists to uh, consider doing this uh, locally as well. Um, most allergists don't like being in the hospital. This is one way of, you know, avoiding the hospital. And they can always then refer you patients as an outpatient, those that they can't get to. So it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that relationship is so important. Like, as you mentioned, even if you can't evaluate them at the moment of hospitalization, you set up that uh, referral process and you can see them once they're once they're home and recovered. Absolutely. What is the most common misconception that you encounter regarding penicillin allergies? Um, I would say that um, from the patient side, it's really um, the fear of, you know, the likelihood that they're going to react uh, to the testing. Um, So I think, you know, we, we described, you know, what, what, what we're going to do and, you know, that, that, that this is really, you know, a pretty, uh, benign procedure. We're, we're we're not expecting problems, but when you ask them, they they always are like, "Why? I was really worried about this testing, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a big deal." So I think that's probably another area of opportunity that we can do better in terms of educating and really reassuring patients that you know we almost never see reactions, and when we do, they're not severe. Um, I think from the physician side of things, it's really that. Um, most people who have this label really aren't allergic. I think they're starting to get that message, but I still think they don't even comprehend how the overwhelming majority are just not allergic and that we can easily delabel them. So mm-hmm. I think those are the two big misconceptions that I encounter. Oh, sure. Well, as National Penicillin Allergy Awareness Day approaches on September 28th, do you have any special plans? Do you dust off your Alexander Fleming costume and, and parade around the hospital? Is this a major holiday for you? Tell us more what you, what you do on this day. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a good question, and, and I probably should have uh, bigger plans uh, than, than <laughs> I do. Uh, but I, I, I am looking forward to it and, and, and spraying the message uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, maybe I do need to invest in an Alexander Fleming costume. You give me a good idea. <laughs> in February of 2022, you're going to become the president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. What are you most looking forward to during your one-year term as president? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's certainly a, a great opportunity to um, hopefully uh, serve our membership. Um, and I've enjoyed um, being a part of the board for a number of years now and working with uh, great people. So, yeah, I, I think I'm just looking to the opportunities and challenges uh, 
of, of working with all the individuals on the board and uh, the, the the group of uh, great uh, uh, staff at the academy. Um, hopefully, I won't mess that much. <laughs> and hopefully, we can all be together in person when you do take over in February. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. At the very least, when when you transition in the next year. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, uh, can you offer any sneak preview as to what the focus of your presidential initiative will be? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I've got three things in, in mind um, as an initiative. Um, one is uh, the, the bane of many uh, physicians' existence, and that's prior authorizations. Um, and so I'd like to... Uh, develop a prior authorization task force to see what 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 can be done to reduce the burden and what can the academy do to help uh, help help this huge burden uh, that we and uh, our patients uh, deal with. Another thing is national regi- uh, residency education program in allergy immunology. This is something that we've been doing in Texas now for uh, 23 years. And I'd like to see if we can't expand that to a a national level. The concept is we have a program that talks about allergy and immunology uh, topics. And we we bring this to the attention of uh, residents in pediatrics or internal medicine with with a focus of two things. One is to, uh, you know, increase the pipeline of of residents who are interested in our specialty. And then the other is just to make people aware of what we as allergy immunology specialists have to offer. Um, And I think it's also another opportunity that we can target uh, 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 certain groups and expand our diversity in terms of uh, our pipeline as well. And then the third thing, as you might imagine, has something to do with drug allergy, and I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that I can maybe develop a, uh, a drug allergy research award through the academy because uh, uh, drug allergy uh, doesn't have any type of other, uh, you know, patient uh, support group. There's, there's no mothers against drug allergy. You know, it'd be nice if there were. Um, but uh, there's, there's a lot of things that we need to uh, unmet needs, and I think uh, if the academy can help support some research, I think that'd be fantastic. Oh, I, I think we're all looking forward to your initiatives, and uh, hopefully that's going to make a, a big dent in a lot of major issues that we're all dealing with. Well, Dr. Khan, this has been an incredible conversation, and I know it's very uh, useful for a lot of our listeners, and I truly appreciate you taking the time to join us. Do you have any last words before we depart? Sure. I would just say as allergists, uh, we need to own and embrace drug allergy, and I would say penicillin uh, allergy delabeling is really a great service uh, we can offer uh, not only uh, our patients, uh, but the population at large. Uh, So thanks for the opportunity to talk about such an important topic and and make sure all of you mark your calendars for September 28th and uh, look forward to seeing me in my uh, Sir Alexander Fleming costume in the future. (laughs) We definitely need pictures of that. (laughs) Well, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.